Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, you're telling me. Producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. The Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals links to the source material from all of our adapted film discussions. Purchasing through our links support the show at no extra cost to you. In Season 12, the focus was big franchises and series. We covered both Paddington films, adapted from the beloved children's book character created by Michael Bond. Oh, I love those films so much. Hugh Grant is perfect. For our Pitch Perfect series, the first film was adapted from Mickey Rapkin's nonfiction book about collegiate acapella competitions. It's like a short story of my life, literally. I lived college acapella. Sing it, brother. I lived college acapella. <laughs> I didn't mean literally. <laughs> You know who you're talking to, right? The Twilight Saga dominated the season with five films adapted from Stephanie Meyer's vampire romance novels, Twilight, New Moon, Eclipse, and the two Breaking Dawn parts. Dominated with awkward romance and nonsense logic is more like it. <laughs> that too. Another Thin Man brought us back to Dashiell Hammett's only Thin Man sequel based on other Hammett material, The Farewell Murder, that wasn't just based on the characters from the first film. We talked about Train Spotting and its sequel, T2 Train Spotting, adapted from Irvine Welsh's novels. Ugh, I hate the sequel's name. I do too. And the entire Lord of the Rings trilogy, adapted from J.R.R. Tolkien's epic fantasy series. Love these. Extended editions all the way, baby. Plus, all the Mission Impossible films based on the 1960s TV series. And we've still got at least one more to go. Members got to hear us chat about The Hustler and The Color of Money, adapted from Walter Tevis's books. Get all of these books and more at our Originals page, thenextreel.com slash originals. Start your next read from the movies we've covered at thenextreel.com slash originals.
I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. John Wick is over. He was once an associate of ours. They call him Baba Yaga. I'm up. I'm up. You like that, huh? Nice ride. Thanks. How much? Excuse me? How much for the car? She's not for sale. You have good day, sir. Daisy. I lost everything. That dog was a final gift from my dying wife. Jonathan, you got out once. You dip so much as a pinky back into this pond, you may find something reaching out to pull you back in. It's personal. Where'd you get that car? What does it matter? It's not what you did, son. It's who you did it to. The nobody? But nobody. Okay, here we are. It's John Wick time. Big franchise for you and me, right? Big fans. It's a big franchise. And uh, we're going to be talking about this just in time for the fourth film to come out in theaters. So it's kind of, uh, yeah, it's a nice, uh, a nice one to, you know, we try to do this once in a while where we time a series to hit with a film that's uh, coming out in theaters. And so for this one, it is John Wick Chapter 4. And so, yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing that one and um, definitely looking forward to chatting about this film because it's an interesting franchise in that it wasn't designed to be a franchise and the success kind of spurred them on to develop it more. Yeah, I actually am really curious to talk. I'm actually more curious to talk about John Wick Chapter 2 than this one because of that specific point. I love this movie, but it's kind of an easy... It's kind of an easy walk uh, because I feel good about it. That's not to say I feel bad about any of the other John Wick movies, uh, but I am really curious given the the you know shifting that it has taken and the fact that it is it has spawned a bit of a of a John Wick cinematic universe. At least I I say that kind of hopefully that we end up seeing some of the spinoff properties we'll talk about later. Uh, this is this is one of those incredibly interesting you know, characters for me and an interesting mythos that is being explored here. Definitely. Well, um, we'll get into it, but first, uh, this movie, when it came out in theaters, no surprise, rated R for strong and bloody violence throughout, language, and brief drug use. Andy, uh, John Wick... Um, is, uh, is he your spirit animal down there in Arizona? You know, I think I like John Wick a lot less than most people. Really? Yeah. Why? 
I, I enjoy the film. I enjoy the franchise. Um, you know, in our pre-show chat, we were chatting a little bit about kind of the, the place for this film in, um, with gun violence and actions, action sequences and all that. And this is one of those films that I, I think that they developed a fascinating, mythos and world here that I certainly enjoy exploring in the films. But to a certain extent, it is one of those films where there's a lot of, uh, you know, as I was counting, there were at least, I guess it depends on how you define a, a fight sequence, but, uh, you know, I counted at least eight eight fight sequences. You know, there's there's one in there that arguably could, or there's two that arguably could fit as one fight sequence, but still, it's a lot of particular fight sequences and a lot of action, which is fun to watch, but, uh, and I enjoy the way it's crafted, but at the same time, it's just, I never fall in love with it. I just never end up completely, I don't know, I just, I, I don't get into it as much as I want, which is interesting because you look at something like Mad Max Fury Road, which arguably is a similar sort of film, right? It's just a lot of fight sequences, one after the other, as they, as they chase each other around. I really, really love that film. And this one, I'm just like, yeah, I enjoy it. I enjoy it. I don't love it, but I enjoy it. Okay. I, I am, I say that as if I've given up on you. I haven't given up on you. I, um, I, I think that's actually really interesting. Only, I don't know why I had it in my head that you liked this movie more. Uh, so I'll go ahead and, and come in as the, as the, the John Wick, uh, fanboy, I guess. Yeah. That'll be my role. I have, I, I've always really, really enjoyed it. And I, I think part of the reason I enjoy it so much is it's not necessarily the story. It's a pretty simple re- revenge story that drives us into, you know, a Russian mob underworld. And, it, you know, that's, that's all fine. It's pretty straightforward. There's nothing I, I, I don't think particularly groundbreaking in, in the story beats. It's all a little bit tropey, but I do really enjoy Keanu Reeves' performance. I love the fact that Keanu Reeves exists to make movies like this at this point at at his age at at his sort of level of physical stamina but more importantly than all of that I love the dance of this movie. I mean, I think so much of the movie is, um, of, of the entire franchise is built on the creativity with which they treat these sort of balletic a- action sequences, these martial arts sort of action gun sequences. And as a, a fan of gun kata, I thought you would be much, uh, hotter on, <laughs> on these films than that. And maybe, maybe that's, maybe we still need to talk about gun kata. Well, I mean, you know, jumping all the way back to equilibrium with that, but I mean, even that, I only rated two and a half stars as much as I still enjoy a lot of the sequences and the way that film was crafted, you know? It was all the Gunkata was two and a half stars and the rest was just trash. <laughs> well, the film is really fun. And I one of the things that I enjoy so much about it is that the challenge to get it made, I find that fight really fascinating just the the struggles that they had to actually make this film at this particular point in time with Keanu Reeves as the star like there were a lot of things that um that kind of ended up like it was it was hard to do but it ended up working in such a like fascinating way to make something so interesting and even this finding distribution like there were a lot of things about this that just seemed things just happened to work out 
to turn it into something that has just grown and grown and grown. And I we'll really talk, love yeah, that. Talk more about that. What, what happened? Well, I mean, it just, I mean, this, the whole thing starts with, you know, the, this, the writer of this, Derek Kolstad, who had been struggling trying to get scripts written and he was writing and writing and writing and got some low budget action movies done. Like he did one in the chamber and the package and was trying to, um, tap into getting this stuff done and just and couldn't figure out what people wanted and so ended up writing this spec script and and he had uh, and this was about john wick and it's actually interesting like the original draft of the script it sounds much more like an unforgiven type of story where it's like a retired um, like much older like 75 year old hitman who had long been retired like 30 years or something and uh, is brought back into the fold and that's the script that basil um iwanik i don't know how you say his last name but basil iwanik i'll just say the producer who i mean had been producing some bigger fare at uh through warner brothers through his uh, company thunder road uh you know he had done stuff like k19 the Widowmaker, and firewall and uh clash of the titans and the town and wrath of the titans and so it had been involved in some very big projects for warner brothers but was really unhappy with the fact that he was just not getting to really have much of a say in the projects he wasn't really getting to have that autonomy and ended up deciding I'm going to do an independent film and, you know, find out something that I can do with for a little less money and ended up reading the spec script and loved it and decided. Uh, and then, oh, and he was also conveniently friends with uh, Keanu Reeves' agent. And Keanu Reeves' agent, Keanu Reeves had been hitting this period in time where he had done like 47 Ronin and uh, I can't remember, but some other films that just weren't finding a market. And so he was looked at as somebody who wasn't necessarily going to be, you know, isn't carrying films the way that he used to. And so Iwanek wanted to make this movie and Kolstad wanted, you know, had this script Keanu Reeves was interested, and they all decided, you know what, maybe we can make this happen. Keanu Reeves had actually um, worked with um, Chad Stahelski and David Leach in uh, in the Matrix uh, trilogy and recommended them to come in to do the action sequences. Well, they ended up pitching themselves as the directors and got hired to do it. So it was all these people who ended up kind of passionate about this one particular story, and then they reworked it to fit Keanu Reeves' age instead of a 75-year-old. And Iwanek got the money, and they made it an independent film, and then nobody wanted it. <laughs> because, again, people were like, Keanu Reeves isn't carrying movies right now. It's unknown directors. You know, we're just not sure. Well, uh, Lionsgate ended up picking it up. It was just one of those things where they it just kind of... It worked. It clicked. They 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 put a marketing plan in place, and suddenly it turned into a thing where people are like, "Oh, this is actually interesting." There's a little more here, and it really is whatever Lionsgate did as the marketing for this film that brought people to it and turned it into something that people really wanted to see, and and it just kind of grew from there. But it was this film that you know, it's just interesting. Like all of these people were tr were wanting to get something done something that was a little more interesting a little more unique and you know the directors having been involved in the world of stunts not having directed before they wanted to do the all the stunt sequences in a way where 
a lot longer takes through the different uh, choreographed action sequences to allow us to kind of see that these actors are really doing this stuff as opposed to so many close-ups and quick cuts. And so, yeah, I think they were clearly passionate about the project. And that, to me, that's one of the things that I love the most about it is it's made by people who had an incredible passion to put something unique together. Yeah, so you you bring up in there one of my central questions about the story for you. Does the age thing work? And I, I say that with this as background. You you already alluded to it. The background of uh, John Wick as a character. Born Jardani Jovanovich in Belarus, he was an orphan taken in by the Tarasov Russian mafia where he was raised as an assassin. He was so ruthless that the mafia boss Vigo Tarasov respected and feared him at the beginning of the first film where he's been long retired from a hitman, but retired from being a hitman for five years. So in this film, five years out, Given his level of expertise and uh, uh, experience, does does that play for you versus having somebody that they were originally talking about, someone in the Harrison Ford, uh, Clint Eastwood sort of range? While I really like that idea, uh, in fact, I mean, I feel like you can probably see something like that. Isn't the latest The Old Man or whatever, the one with Jeff Bridges? Yeah. Oh, yeah, exactly. Where he's, it's kind of along that line. Right. I I love that idea. Like, I absolutely think that's a fascinating direction to take it. I don't think you'd be able to do that. I don't think somebody of that age would be able to do what Keanu Reeves is able to do in a film like this. And it's not like, I mean, you know, he said that he was playing a, like a 35 year old and Keanu Reeves is God, how old is he? He's 58 right now. So is who is 49 at the time of making this good. And he God. was, he was playing, they were playing him as a 39 year or 35 year old, 35 year old. Yeah. That's what he said. He was, he, when they, when they reworked the script, uh, they brought it down from 75 to 35. Um, so that was kind of, uh, their thinking at least, I mean, it's never stated, but that was just kind of the way that he was, they were thinking it. Wow. Regardless, I don't think you could do the sort of film that we have here. I think it would boil down to a lot less big stunts and a lot more gunplay. And I think it's doable, but I find that this works so well because it is a younger person who's able to do all the different things, the jujitsu and the, the gun kata and the um, you know, just everything else that he's doing. I mean, he's he clearly is a person who has been in the Matrix and knows everything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I the, the only reason I bring that up is because there is an actor that I think could do all of it and play that old. Uh, and that actor is Stephen Lang. He can play older. He looks older. And he, he just did. Didn't he just do a movie that... Old Man? Yeah, Old Man. Isn't that kind of... I just think about him in Don't Breathe and like those those kinds of characters. He's a guy I think who could play that off. Yeah, the the challenge with Stephen Lang is I don't think he sells box office. Yeah, no, that's the problem. That's a problem. But see, I think the movie with like this Harrison Ford, Clint Eastwood aged character is it just such a different movie that it would be, I mean, it would be a different movie. It's not an action movie, right? It's a much more of a sort of thriller. And that's okay. It's just not the movie that we got with with. John Wick, and I think it's 
I think it's awesome because we've created like they build into the story, the legend, right? They build into it the fact that he's Baba Yaga, right? He's existed for all time and he will exist for all time uh, forward. And that's the myth that that they're that they're fighting is this thing the the benefit that we have as the audience is that we're on the other side of it and we get to see how when he gets kicked in the face it hurts and when he gets stabbed it hurts and the fact that he is this sort of unstoppable timeless figure is what's compelling about John Wick and ultimately about the series is that we get to see both sides of it and i think that's cool i think that plays it would not play i don't think if it was um you know, if it was if it was played in that age that they're really telling it, um, that, I think that the animated series Batman, right, where you have Bruce Wayne as an elderly man is is kind of it like it. That character works great, but it's uh, it, it only really works with a young avatar or Logan, you know, old man Wolverine. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I just I want to go back to the Baba Yaga thing to, as a side note on all of this, because I think it's funny that they call him Baba Yaga. Well, it is kind of funny because. He says that we called him Baba Yaga, and then his uh, his son is like, he's the boogeyman, and he's like, no, he's who we hired to kill the boogeyman, yeah. or whatever. <laughs> and it's just like, okay, so wait, is, is the Baba Yaga the boogeyman? It's like, it's kind of a funny, weird like thing of the names. But also, what's just funny about it is Baba Yaga is traditionally a woman, like a yeah, witch. One of, <laughs> uh, one of three sister witches in yeah, who Polish. has. Yeah, chicken legs and stuff. And I, it's funny because I, I don't think I'd ever heard of Baba Yaga until this film. And then, like, I don't know, is it the very next year that Ant-Man comes out and Baba Yaga's brought up in there? I'm like, God, this like this Baba Yaga thing. Everybody's talking about Baba Yaga now. It's just really funny that, you know, when, when you learn more about Baba Yaga, it's like, why do they call him Baba Yaga if Baba Yaga is like this this woman witch? But, yeah, whatever. Yeah. Well, that's really, it's also interesting because this is Russian mafia. And the only reason I know about Baba Yaga is because my wife lived in Russia and she brought Baba Yaga back. And she was still, even in Russia, a Russian witch with chicken legs. Yeah. <laughs> that's just the worst nickname. I, I don't know if they, I don't know if they knew that. When they named him Baba Yaga, or they just thought, oh, this sounds cool, let's call him that, and then only later realized, hmm, that, uh, yeah, that maybe we shouldn't is, have called him Baba Yaga. That might need to be the shirt for this episode, is just John Wick with chicken feet. <laughs> Flying around. We can make like, that well, that's the thing. The Baba Yaga flies around in a mortar and wields a pestle as a weapon. It's just like, what a, what a weird thing to decide. Let's, let's call him Baba Yaga. Oh my god. That's funny. That's really yeah, very funny. funny. Anyway, so okay, revenge thrillers. Let's talk a little bit about that because in the scope of the story, essentially all of our characters are killers, right? Even John Wick is a killer. It's just he had fallen in love with this woman. Um wonderfully played in very short and tiny scenes by um, Bridget Moynihan, who's always nice to see on screen. But he was a killer. He had been, I mean, they talk about this scene, which I, I like that they don't show us anything about that impossible task that they had given him, right? When when Vigo is talking about this thing about, you know, he is given an impossible ta task. That's why we have the power we do today, because he completed it. And there were so many bodies, like he, it was an, so many bodies that he left behind. It's It's an interesting set up for this character. And so we know this is not a good guy. I mean, he's a hitman, he's a criminal, he's a terrible person, but 
we like him. And in a scope of movies like about where everybody's a criminal, like Ocean's Eleven, we like him. They're still in, but we like them because they're stealing from somebody who's worse than them. And this is the same thing here. Like, okay, John Wick, he's a former killer. We like him, though, because we meet him. He had a wife. He loves his puppy. But he wants revenge because this person took away everything that uh, he had. They killed his puppy that that he just got from his just dead wife and uh, stole his car. And so it turns into this revenge story. And so in the scope of that, like what are, what are, what is, is it Keanu Reeves? Like, what is it that we end up getting from this movie that turns into something that we say, you know what? I, I really truck with this guy and I'm okay that he's running around killing everybody because that person killed his puppy. Like, what is it about John Wick as a character that we end up liking so much? I, for me, I think you are vastly understating the they killed his puppy bit, right? I just want to say he had that puppy for less than 24 hours. Doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because that puppy was a symbol <laughs> of his grief. And that's what, that I, is what know, I think is really I important that you are being such a buzzkill about right now. <laughs> no, I, I, I just thought it was funny this time. I'm like, why did I think like in my head, like I hadn't watched this in a while. And in my head, I was just like, he has a puppy. They live together for years, and they kill his grown-up dog. Like, in my brain, like, they killed his dog, not his puppy that he just had. Yeah. And I had totally forgotten that he gets it the day after, or, like, you know, he comes back from the funeral, gets the puppy, takes care of the puppy, feeds him some cereal, and then is uh, is killed, like, in the middle of the night. And yeah. that's it. I was like, Wow. That was so much lot. faster. <laughs> that was so much faster than I remembered. I really thought there was a passage of time in there. So I was clearly wrong. I was watching this with my son and I was thinking, gosh, when are they going to get to like, how long will it take to get to some of the action? Because I want him to see like some of the awesome action. And it does. It's pretty patient in that opening segment. Right. The fact that they give him the entirety of that first like 15, 20 minutes to explore the fact that his that that his wife is recently dead, that we get a number of little flashbacks, that we get a bit of how hard it is to move on from that relationship of your life when when you lose your partner like that and i think it's um i I think that was really important and the gift of that dog not just that he went out and bought a dog to replace his relationship with his wife but that it was her last like intentional gift to him like her dying breath was you've got to love something john here's this this is a piece of me and then they kill the dog like that is such unspeakable grief in in my head like i can't i i absolutely feel like his his search for vengeance is justified because he's he's avenging an emotional demon it's not about the dog right it's it's not about the dog it's it's about the fact that he's lost his wife and he hasn't figured out how to attack that and how to how to come to terms with that the only skill that he has is killing people and now he has a target and i think that's really great right that's that i think gives this otherwise like mindless action movie some grit it gives it reason Right. And, and I, I think that to me, that matters. That matters a lot. And maybe I, I would have a different opinion. Like I just, the last, you know, year and a half of, of watching 
you know, my mom go through this process of of grief. If my mom had those skills, she might be out killing people, right? Like, she, it's it. Let's say it's really hard to lose your partner. It's really hard, and uh, I think John Wick is an emotional vessel for that. No, and I agree. I'm just I'm being a little cheeky with the the fact that the script. I I just misremembered it so much. And like, I had forgotten that it was just so fresh, but yeah, I mean, to your point that that puppy is tied so directly to his wife because of that letter that came with it, right? When the puppy arrives, it has that letter from her explaining all of that. And so, yeah, there, and he, like, he literally just got back from the funeral of his wife. So it is incredibly fresh. And so, yeah, I, I get that. It's very much this emotional, direct emotional connection to his wife. And they just took all of that away. Plus it is a puppy. I mean, come on. It's, it's, that's not something that you kill. That was pretty terrible. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's terrible. So that gets the ball rolling. And uh, the ball, I guess you said, the ball gets rolling when he goes to get gas in his fancy car, his 69 Mustang, which is a gorgeous car. But we should say Alfie Allen is the, is, I I guess we will, I don't know if we're going to say that he's the ultimate antagonist of the film, but he certainly is um, the, uh, the one that he has to get through or that he gets through. And then of course that leads to the ultimate antagonist of the film, which is of course, um, Alfie Allen's characters, Yosef, uh, his father played by, uh, Michael Nickvist, Vigo. And I really like that. There is this, uh, the way that it's constructed, I find fascinating how Yosef is new enough to the business where he, he's clearly been clueless. Like the whole time he, didn't necessarily know who John Wick was, even though his father, Vigo, had John Wick in his employ all of those years. And as we said, John Wick got him to this point where he did this impossible task that gave Vigo his his entire business. And Yosef just knows none of that because he's just a clueless kid and just and, and kind of an idiot and, uh, you know, is very self-centered, just doesn't pay attention to any of that stuff. And so and thinks he's better than everything. He's so arrogant. It plays so well. And Alfie Allen is just one of those actors who you kind of love to hate. And so he works oh, really so well easy. in that part. So easy. Yeah. And, but then you get those moments that like everything that they do in the script sells all of this so well, how Yosef, you know, he, he talks to John at the gas station, John wakes up in the middle of the night, Yosef and his guys uh, beat him up, kill his puppy, take the car keys and, and take off. Then, uh, John Wick goes to see uh, John Leguizamo, who's the, the chop shop guy and finds out that they had been there. And then you have that fantastic conversation because uh, John Leguizamo's character had hit Yosef when Yosef tried bringing the car uh, to sell there. And John Leguizamo has that conversation with Vigo. And he says, look, he has John Wick's car. And all you get out of Vigo is, oh. And then he hangs up like, oh, okay. I, I, I now understand why you hit my son and you're forgiven because my son's an idiot. Like that, it just, it was so perfectly put together. I just have to call out uh, Alfie Allen's turn as Theon in Game of Thrones and how gratifying it was in this movie to put those in the same cinematic universe because at some level, I just kept thinking, remember when Theon gets flayed? That was awesome. (laughs) 
Oh. I don't know if I would ever say anyone getting flayed is awesome. That was just one. Of the, that's just horrific. It was. It, just... It's, it's hard, but he is. I, I mean, I, I, I wonder if you could pick. I mean, are you looking at his IMDb? I hope you're not, because we could, we could do a just a quick round of the IMDb game for Alfie Allen. Well, you, uh, you can, but I don't. I don't know if I could name anything that he's been in other than this in Game of Thrones. Okay. Well, then it'd be a short game. His top four are John Wick and Game of Thrones. Those are the those are two. Uh, the other two, the other Boleyn girl, he played King's Messenger. Okay. And the Predator. Oh. Uh, he played Lynch. I tried to forget. I watched that. I know. I know. You did. You did all right. Apparently. Weirdly, Jacob Tremblay is like the only one I remember who's in that, and he's like the kid. <laughs> <laughs> Well, okay, so so that's kind of the setup of the story, right? We have this kid or this, you know, this young punk who beats up John Wick, kills his puppy, steals his car, and is just, you know, just running around partying and having a great old time, has no sense as to what he's done. And then you have his father, Vigo, who now has to basically deal with this mess. And what I do really like about uh, Michael Nickvist, who we've talked about a number of times because he did the, uh, you know, the um, Millennium Trilogy films, which we really enjoy. And we'll be talking about him um, in a little while because we're going to be talking about our Mission Impossible series. So, yes, uh, he's an actor who we lost too soon, but fantastic performer. Great here as this Russian crime boss. And uh, what I love about the way that he plays his character is he knows as soon as he gets that call from Aurelio that John Wick is going to kill his son and very possibly may kill him because there's this element where he, as a father, is kind of in the same place as John Wick, where it's less, I can't let you do that to my son. I will have to, I will have to avenge him. And there is that element of Vigo that it's played in such an interesting way by uh, Nickvist, where he, he knows exactly where things are going to go, doesn't really have a choice though, and has to kind of move forward and just like let all of these pieces fall where they may. I find that to be fascinating with that character. Well, and I, I just have to call out that sequence when he gets the call from um, Aurelio. Uh, he says, I hear you struck my son. May I ask why? Right. He's so chill. He's so calm. And then he finds out your son took John Wick's car. And the way he plays that phone call starting on the back of his head. Right. And then he turns and he says, oh, like you can tell I'm I'm making this call as a courtesy to you to know that there will be payback to you for striking my son. And that immediately goes away and and turns to I now understand the entire universe has pivoted on its axis. And uh, I I think he's he's absolutely fantastic. It was it was really fun to see him uh, in this role. I mean, I think the last thing I would have watched him in most recently would have been the Millennium Trilogy. And it was neat to see how he aged into this role. And the fact that he, I feel like he recognizes early on that that there's no other way out. Like, he's in an impossible situation. Even as much respect as he has for John Wick, he, like, he is, he's drawn in because of John Wick's inability to stop, right? He's, he is, Vigo, you, 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 there are so many opportunities in the movie where Vigo, I feel like, is trying to stop. He's trying to make, 
this thing go away early on and eventually it just becomes this stone on a mountain it just never it, it never stops so yeah right right what do you think of uh Willem Dafoe is another character who's brought into this world. He plays Marcus. He's another hitman who is uh, clearly from the beginning he had been friends with John. I wasn't sure if he also was kind of retired or you know whatever his story was, but there was this backstory between the two of them. They seemed to be friends and work together um in their past. He is brought in by Vigo to be as Vigo we hit this point where Vigo decides he's going to open a contract on John. He wants John dead before John kills his son. And one of the people that he that Vigo speaks to first is Marcus. And he asks Marcus, would you kill John Wick? It's $2 million. And he's just like, consider it done. And then as we see his character um, over the course of the film, he never is, uh, he's always in positions where he clearly is like pursuing John, watching John, but he's always doing it in a way where he's actually helping John. Like first we have uh, Perkins, uh, you know, she's uh, Adrienne uh, Palicki. She's uh, Perkins who comes into John's room in the Continental to kill him. And essentially Marcus fires a warning shot so that John's aware that she's there and can, can take care of her later when John is has been caught by Vigo and is uh, being suffocated by a couple of his thugs, Marcus kills one of the thugs and allows John to essentially get out. And and so, what was your sense of him as uh, kind of somebody who he's selling himself to Vigo as somebody who's game to take this contract, but really is working with John? That's an interesting way to put it. And I, I wonder, let me just pitch this read to that character to you and see if it if you if it changes your mind i don't think he's ever working with john i think he's accepted the deal and he wants if he's going to do it he's going to do it himself and every time he's in a position that ultimately he ends up helping john it's so that john lives to ultimately die at marcus's hands I was wondering about that, although it it kept me asking, like, well, why why is he waiting so long? And then you have that scene between John and Marcus toward the end of the film, after John has uh, you know finally tracked down Yosef uh, and killed him, where the two of them meet under the bridge and they have that conversation, and and John kind of thanks him for for everything, and that's where Perkins sees him and clearly tells Vigo that Marcus had been working with John, and that's what triggers Vigo to bring Perkins and then go kill Marcus. So that that scene made me think, especially since John hadn't been working, you know, he'd been retired for five years, and he says at some point when he's talking to somebody, he's a little rusty, perhaps there had been something where the two of them were kind of like he was kind of, I mean, and maybe John didn't, wasn't aware, but it just, it felt like when they had that conversation, I was like, oh, okay. He knew people were out there now because he knew the contract was open. And so I guess my read on it became, I'm going to stick up for John and I'm going to just make sure that he's okay. I, I don't know. I didn't, I, that didn't, that scene didn't change my view of it because at that point the contract had been pulled when they had that conversation. And I think it's okay for these guys to be professional friends and colleagues and for him not to really want to kill his friend. But if he's going to, if the contract's out and his friend's going to die, he wants to be the one to do it. And once the contract is pulled, he's okay going back to their former relationship. The fact that he 
took his time in order to do it his way, to me, is what got him killed. Never, I was never really, I don't think, swayed by that final, you know, his final undoing. Yeah. But, but I totally, I mean, I get it, and I think I might be too generous in my read of it, but I, I do prefer, I think I prefer Marcus being a, a malevolent character ultimately in this, in this story. And, you know, he is also an assassin. And the fact that Adrian Pilecki's, uh, Ms. Perkins tells on him, just because she doesn't necessarily know exactly what's going on anyway, is not necessarily an indication of Marcus's innocence. Yeah, it's it, it's just one of those things. I don't know. I I I think that they crafted in a way where you could probably read it a number of different ways, and I think either of our interpretations could play. Yeah, like I, I don't think it's designed in a way where it's completely spelled out. So I think that's it's kind of an interesting interesting that they left it as open as they did. I think it is interesting too, and it's a confrontation or a conversation we won't have again because he's dead. Like he is actually, you know, that could have been one of the most interesting kind of character relationships going through this series. But because they didn't know if this was going to be a series, uh, Defoe is gone. He would have been. I'd, I'd be really interested to watch, you know, him in this universe going forward. Yeah, certainly. It's it is definitely an interesting um element to see like who who does continue. Uh, Adrian uh Palicki does get killed Perkins uh because of the fact that she broke the rules of the Continental and I suppose this is probably a good point to start talking about that as far as this fascinating Hitman Hotel where <laughs> where it's a place for anyone who's in this industry to go. It's a safe space, so you can't be attacked while you're in here. You're not supposed to be. And if you do attack somebody in here, then you are uh, excommunicado, which we learn uh, as as Perkins is gunned <laughs> down. Say it again. Excommunicado. Right. It's uh, And, you know, Ian McShane plays Winston. He's a fascinating character as kind of the owner of this place. And then, of course, Lance Reddick is the ever enigmatic presence of the, I don't know if he's the, um, the, the guy behind the desk, we'll just call him. Yeah. Uh, such a fascinating thing. And then, oh, and then they're also building in this whole world where you have these special gold coins that all of these people use. It's not cash. It's these special gold coins. Like when uh, John has to uh, hire this, quote, cleaning service to come. The, the, <laughs> one of my favorites is when he makes this phone call for 12, dinner reservations for a party of 12, and this cleaning service shows up at his house to kind of clean, you know, get rid of the bodies, clean the place up and everything. It's fascinating the way that they set this up. And he pays them with these gold coins. That is part of this whole thing with the Continental. It's such an interesting world that they've crafted here. I, I love this vibe that we get with this. Have we talked about the weird value of coins in the in this universe? No. The fact that it seems inconsistent to me. Yeah, right. <laughs> the value, like, what is the exchange rate of one of these coins to dollars? That's, yeah, it's a great question because sometimes it's like, because I, I don't know, he paid the guy 12 coins, like one coin per body, right? Right. And then, but then later he just is trying to get into the fancy like club at the end, and he puts a co a coin into a slot into to the, get into right. the door, into the speakeasy. Right, that's like worth a body cleanup to get into the speakeasy. That seems out of out of character to me. He gives the guy a coin to babysit. 
It's a world we don't understand, Pete. <laughs> Boy, that's the truth. <laughs> I, I I just I love that though. I mean, what do you think of the Continental and this uh, this world that they created for us here? Well, I love the Continental, and I know this is a thing you're going to talk about in sequels and remakes, but the Continental is one of the one of the places that I'm most interested to explore more fully. That it has such a such a strict set of rules. It's a universe unto itself. Like the fact that these assassins, they need a place to unwind, and so they've created a place to unwind. And the economy has sort of taken its its hold on this facility. Uh, and and I just I'm so curious about all the ins and outs of of what what the universe looks like. Who is who ultimately? You know, who's above Ian McShane? Who's that? Like I'm asking all those questions before we get into the next. Um, the next movie and and the broader universe and i my understanding is that eventually we might get a series take on the continental um uh, as a sort of a deep space nine <laughs> it feels like a deep space nine to me um you know the things that come in and out of this facility and how it works and i'm i'm very intrigued by that i think that could be a just a super interesting unraveling of mythos did you watch hotel artemis because i felt like I didn't see it, but I felt like they were trying to essentially kind of do the same thing with that movie. I didn't. I didn't see okay, it. Okay. It was one of those ones where I was curious when I saw the trailer, but then I never actually watched it and a kind of interest kind of waned, you know, eventually. But but it certainly piqued my curiosity when it came out. Um, you know, just the idea of this, again kind of a sp- a safe space for these criminals to come and get taken care of, you know? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, I think it's great. And I, I think Lance Reddick is perfect as the man behind the desk. And uh, I've, I've loved him since, you know, I think I, it's the first time I think I really noticed him was The Wire. Uh, I just have such a high opinion of, of the projects he takes on. So eager to see i'm surprised i'm surprised it wasn't the siege you love that movie so you know i did love that movie but i don't think i i don't think i remembered him in that movie Uh, you're right i probably should have yeah well uh, yeah it's it's a fascinating world i do like that uh, and clearly that's one of the elements that made this story something that connected with people more than your average run-of-the-mill revenge film right this is a story where you have this world that they don't give you a lot of pieces of but clearly they have been thinking about the world building and they give you all these bits and pieces and they talk about these things and and you know the the different elements that you you have to be aware of as far as you know seat at the table things like that like they say these things and you're like what is it they're talking about i don't know but clearly they know and it makes for something that i found really fascinating and that's a world that i like a lot in in this and getting a chance to see it um you know explored more in the later films i think is really cool uh i mean we we should talk just a little bit then about um you know the stunts and chad stahelski uh, the Chad Stahelski pedigree that comes to this movie. Yeah, and, and David Leach. And David Leach. This this was one of those things, I think, that was that was pitched to those guys as, as um, you know, because they had worked on The Matrix with Keanu, and, and they ended up saying, hey, you know, we think we'd like to direct it. I feel like this movie is the movie that, that takes what they were able to do in terms of fights and make it even more interesting than The Matrix. 
Is that a confrontation or a, a, a um, confrontational? That's not the word. Is is that a take that you take issue with? I definitely think it's a strange take. I mean, I, 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 I guess my issue is as I watch some of their really complicated stunt sequences that they have in this film, I don't know if. I have the right eyes to always watch what's going on. And this is certainly something that I find as I watch all, you know, I'm currently watching a whole bunch of, of martial arts films and it's something that clearly I just don't, I've never trained in. And so when I watch some of these fights, I don't necessarily pick up on a lot of the little things that they're doing. And so I'm like, okay, yeah, that was a really cool fight sequence. They did some cool things, but oftentimes when I, when it catches my eye, it's because of the way that they maybe integrate the camera into it or do some things where it's not just a bunch of, of punching and hitting and shooting and, and slicing and all of that. There's, there are other elements cinematically involved that make it more engrossing for me to watch. The action sequences in John Wick I think are fascinating and they they're done really well because again the two the two directors who got their start in the world of stunts in the 90s really end up finding ways to craft the fight sequences that are longer takes and you're seeing a lot more of the fights that being said they all look like, yeah, that's a really cool fight sequence. Like, John Wick clearly kicks ass. Like, that's kind of how I end up watching it. Whereas in The Matrix, it was done in this way where it allowed them to do stuff that was more cinematic because of the fact that they're in The Matrix. And you can play with bullet time and all of that. And so, for me, The Matrix would be still the standout between the two. Well, I think they're very different. For me, I think the reason this is interesting is because it's so grounded. Like, when you take away the magic of the Matrix, um, you have to do things that I think are different in the way these characters move and the way they fight. And this feels like a a unique sort of uh, mess of styles and, and uh, weapons that is really compelling to me visually. But I don't think, I you know, I think to your point, I think stunts is more than just like being able to do a, a good role. But the, the action sequences are how they are portrayed on film, how the camera works, how they're lit, how they're, and, and I, this movie is, it's the raid with more neon. You know what I mean? Like I, I loved the fighting and the raid, that gritty sort of fighting there and i would still i think put the raid higher than this in terms of my uh, some of my favorite just straight up action sequences because they were there were so many people involved but this movie like i think john wick is like celebrates a style of martial art and and fighting using the gun the way he uses the gun the way he uses the gun to kill people at very very close range that i think is uh, exhilarating exhilarating and uh i i uh i guess i maybe i focus too much on some of the individual <laughs> kills but it there's some really gruesome stuff in here that uh, it's I, I think just the way it is portrayed with all the gloss and pomp and circumstance that is uh is really exciting yeah no and i i definitely agree with that the thing that i think it sells for me more than as like high quality stunts is they design it in a way where it all moves incredibly well and it's done in a way where it always is highlighting how effective John is at his job. And that I think is why it sells so well. Because I mean, take for example, 
the uh, the first of our fight sequences, if we're not counting the attack on John, which is really just kind of a, a, a beat-up scene. It's not actually really a fight, because they just kind of take him out. The first fight sequence is when they come to John's house, right? And they And he has to get out of his house. He has to stop these invaders. And the way that he moves through his house and and shoots very economically and takes them out one by one is it's just so i'm going to say this it it doesn't make it boring but it's just like he is so clinical in the way that he accomplishes what he needs to do to come out on top that it's i mean it's kind of cool to see him do that also perhaps is one of the things that makes it feel um it, maybe it does make it for me feel a little clinical like okay he's going through the motions because he's so effective as a, as this hitman that he knows exactly where to shoot and how to shoot and how to hit and everything and it is very exciting but it also feels like effective to a point where i'm like okay well he knows his job I mean, I get it. He knows his job, but he really knows his job. And sometimes it's good to celebrate <laughs> excellence in the workplace. <laughs> <laughs> well, and to your point, I mean, the behind the scenes of this film and this franchise of seeing what Keanu Reeves actually has trained to do. I mean, he's like he is like a Tom Cruise type of person who goes above and beyond to really understand how to move, how to how to hold his weapons, how to use his fists in ways where he essentially can do all of these things that we're seeing. I mean, maybe not quite as quickly or as powerfully, but still, like, he can actually do this, and he's doing almost all of the stunts throughout the film. Like, he's he is incredibly competent, and that's that's another of these elements that, again, going to kind of what I was saying at the very beginning, everybody was very passionate about this project and finding a way to make it work, and that speaks for Keanu and what he was trying to achieve in bringing this character to life. Yeah. Um do you have any? I have a, a adjacent question for you. It's a quiz, and uh, but do you have anything else you want to talk about hot on this movie as we start to wrap up? I just you know the look of the film. Uh, Jonathan Sella was the cinematographer, and capturing a lot of the, the kind of the bluer tones that that kind of look that gives us this really rainy gray blue city. I think is exciting. And then we go into the clubs, and it's just so colorful and bright. And the past, the flashbacks to mem- memories with his wife, or kind of the sepia look. It's it's a film that looks sleek always, and that is, again, another element that ties so perfectly into the world that they're creating. Sure. It's beautiful. I My, my question for you is, how many actors in this movie could you find, did you notice, that were also in the MCU or MCU adjacent? This, of course, celebrating our other podcast, The Marvel Movie Minute, that currently in Season 6, The Avengers. I don't know if I was counting specifically. I mean, I think that's what they mean from Glengarry Glen Ross is always be counting ABC. You should always be counting. Oh, is that what it is? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Willem Dafoe obviously is somebody who comes in late in the MCU, but certainly ties in through the multiverse. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know. I'm I my brain has completely shut down as far as anyone else who's also in the MCU. Well, um, the so Bridget Regan. Uh, was in Agent Carter. Uh, we actually have a couple of Agent Carter oh, uh, okay. veterans. Okay. Um, which is, again, MCU or MCU adjacent. <laughs> yeah, right. 
Daniel uh, Barnhart was, uh, he's, he is a thug and he was in, uh, he was Bonebreaker in Logan, uh, but he was also in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Okay. And uh, let's see, Adrian Pilecki, legendary Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., also Marvel's most wanted TV movie in 2016, but she was Bobby Morse in uh, 31 episodes of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Toby Leonard Moore. Uh, he was one of the trio of Russians, uh, including uh, the son. He was in Daredevil. He was uh, James Wesley in Daredevil for 10 episodes in 2015, which I think is suddenly canon again in the MCU, uh, which I thought was interesting. Oh, I, I think the most far afield when I say adjacent would be Lance Reddick, who played in The Avengers, Earth's Mightiest Heroes, the voice of Sam Wilson, Falcon. Wow. Okay. So when you said the MCU, you really weren't meaning the MCU. <laughs> well, that's the one that's you were not, really, that is truly not no, the uh, MCU. But, but you're really going into like all the TV properties and stuff, and you know me. Yes. That's, a, that's why I said adjacent. I, I know, but, but they, even there, you're, you're still expecting Daredevil me to know that. all these TV shows. Yeah, I know. I just, I, I, and that's when I did watch the first season of. So I did watch yeah. that. But yes, well, and they were in like you know when they were in more than just like a single episode. If they were in multiple episodes, I think that's a that is a, a thing. It just to me, looking at a movie like John Wick and seeing how the vortex of the MCU eventually sucks in every actor, and the six degrees of Kevin Bacon will be completely a useless game because they'll all be related by one is um is the interesting thing to me well sp speaking here's here's my quiz for you then since you're doing this to me yeah uh, can you name any of these actors who are part of the kung fu panda universe because <laughs> <laughs> i'll tell you right I, I know i know there are at least two <laughs> it, well keanu reeves is keanu reeves one of them i don't believe keanu reeves doesn't he sound like that. he should be a voice I believe the only, I, I may be wrong, but the only thing I can remember that he's been in animated was Toy Story 4 when he's um, the fantastic Canadian um, stunt biker. Huh. <laughs> Interesting. So good that. I, yeah. I actually can't. I can't. Uh, that's a quiz that I fail. All right. Ian McShane was the villain in the first <laughs> Kung Fu Panda. And Randall Duck Kim, who is the uh, the doctor in The Continental, yeah. he plays the um, the wise old turtle character, Master Oogway. That's right. So That's right. Yeah. Randall Duck Kim. I, and, and I should say that scene... That scene was awesome. I love how he plays that scene where he says, if you want to heal... <laughs> no movement. If you have business to attend to, take a couple of these. It's gonna hurt, <laughs> like it's gonna bleed, but you'll have you'll have full motion. That was fantastic. I really enjoyed enjoyed him. Yeah, he's an actor who's been acting since the seventies. He was in the Hawaiians. He was in Tora Tora Tora, and uh, so is certainly somebody who has been in the industry for quite a while. Yeah. So, all right. Well, um, what else do we have to talk about? This anything? No, I think I'm good. Well, all right. Then we will be right back. But first, our credits. The Next Reel is a production of True Story FM. Engineering by Andy Nelson. Music by Midnight Noise, Oriel Novella, and Eli Catlin. 
Andy usually finds all the stats for the awards and numbers at d-numbers.com, boxofficemojo.com, imdb.com, and wikipedia.org. Find the show at truestory.fm, and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show. All right, Andy, sequels and remakes, let's go. Oh, should we, let's save that, um, let's save that for when we get to number four, what do you think? Okay, that's fair, that's fair, let's yeah, not do I that. I know you've already, I know you've already teased it a little bit with some of the TV and everything, but yeah, let's save that for when we get to the end of the series. Perfect, okay, then how to do it award season? It won all the stunt awards, please. Well, let's start with the Golden Schmoes. Over there, it won for the biggest surprise of the year. It was nominated for most underrated movie of the year, but lost to Edge of Tomorrow. And John Wick was nominated as the coolest character of the year, but lost to Rocket Raccoon in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 1. Oh. I, you know, think those are all fine. I think those wins are fine. But to your point, the World Stunt Awards, absolutely, it won for Best Fight. And this specifically was when John defends his house from the assassins. The fight features guns, knives, and hand-to-hand combat. They credit the entire team involved, the uh, stunt double for Keanu Reeves, Jackson Spadell, stunt coordinator Darren Prescott, fight coordinator Jonathan Eusebio, fight co-coordinator John Valeria, and then all the stunt performers, Carlos Lopez, Daniel Hernandez, Dean Neistat, Justin Yu, Akos Shenick, and Luis Moco. And then Darren Prescott was also nominated for Best Stunt Coordination and or Second Unit Direction, but lost to Captain America, the Winter Soldier. It's interesting, actually, looking at the Taurus Awards for the year and just seeing, like, what was in there. Like, John Wick won for Best Fight, beating out two scenes from Captain America the Winter Soldier. One was when they're fighting on the city street uh, with hand-to-hand combat, uh, the cars, all that sort of stuff. The other one is when Black Widow takes on the three guys inside the ship. That fight was practical, done without wires or CGI. And then, then the other two were Bang Bang, a movie I'm not familiar with, and 300 Rise of an Empire, the sequel to that one. Uh, but, I mean, looking at the categories, it's kind of fun. Like, the Taurus Awards is, is an award show that we don't think of much, but they have Best Fight, Best High Work, Best Stunt Rigging, Best Work with a Vehicle, Best Specialty Stunt, Best Overall Stunt by a Woman, Hardest Hit, Best Action in a Foreign Film, and Best Stunt Coordinator and or Second Unit Director. Very cool. Yeah, that's really cool. Do you know um, any of the stunts from this year? Are you curious? And I know I'm totally going off on a tangent here, but I am curious though. Yeah, what are give lay it out? Best fight was from the King's Man. Really? I never saw that one. Beating out Black Widow, nobody, the Suicide Squad, and the Last Duel. Fascinating. Uh, and I should say this: this was these they they have not done this year's, so they haven't done the 2022. These are all from 2021. Okay. Uh, best right. best high work was one: No Time to Die. Best stunt rigging: Matrix Resurrections. More Keanu Reeves. Best work with a vehicle: No Time to Die. Best overall stunt by a woman: No Time to Die. Best specialty stunt: No Time to Die. Hardest hit: What a weird thing black widow performer rides loose pipe tower across from building to building the the tower crashes and hits the opposing building to a dead stop the performer goes flying off the pipe one performer crashes through a glass window into a stairwell okay wow it's a sign maybe that that's a principal fight or like stunt sequence and i can't place it in the movie i can't either which is funny and then the best stunt coordinator and or second unit director was from no time to die um, yeah. interesting. I, that you know, it's, it's a category again, I really wish that the Oscars included. 
But I'm glad that the Taurus Awards exist so that we have somebody recognizing the stunts for movies like this. And how about at the box office? How'd it do? Well, for Stahelski's and Leach's foray into directing and producing their first film, they had a strong starting place. 30 million or 38.1 million in today's dollars. Once the movie finally was picked up by Lionsgate, they gave it a release date of October 24th, 2014, opposite Ouija and Lynn Shelton's indie film Laggies. This film opened in number two behind Ouija and stayed in the top 10 for three weeks. It certainly found its audience, though, earning 43 million domestically and another 43 million internationally for a total gross of 109.3 million in today's dollars. That's a Surprised many people as the film did great for itself, landing with an adjusted profit per finished minute of $705,000. And we should note, it was this success that spurred them on to say, hey, maybe we should make a sequel to this. Yeah. Uh, If they didn't take that hint, they'd be really bad at their jobs. (laughs) Yeah, right, right. And you know, as we're wrapping up, one thing that we didn't talk about, this boils down to one of these situations where... Stahelski and Leach directed this film together, but the Directors Guild of America would not let them have co-credit. And again, it boils down to, I don't know, whatever the internal rules are, I'm not exactly sure ever what the rules are about co-directing credits. I know they're very, very particular about it, but they would not let them do it. And so Stahelski ended up getting solo directing credit and Leach ended up getting a producer credit. Okay, that's interesting and frustrating. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. Well, it's a fun film. I really do enjoy it. Don't get me wrong. I just don't, I don't think I love it as much as a lot of people, but I do enjoy this film. I do enjoy this world. Is this one of these series that you have a, a, a higher affinity with one of the later movies than the first one? Do you think? I can't remember all of them that well. So I'm curious to do this series just so I can see them. This one I've seen twice and the other two I've seen once each. And so I'm curious to revisit them because I couldn't tell you. I know there's a lot of things that happen in the next two films, but I can't remember which one is which. You've only, this is the second time you've seen this movie? No, this is the third time I've seen this movie. Oh, okay. The next two, I've only seen once each, so I will be watching them each for my second time. Okay. That's, this is great. I feel good just being along for the ride. <laughs> Well, we will be right back for our ratings, but first, here's the trailer for next week's movie, John Wick, Chapter 2. Welcome to Rome. Is this a formal event or a social affair? Social. How many buttons? Two. And what style? Tactical. Mr. Wick, do enjoy your party. How good to see you again so soon. You have no idea what's coming. You want a war? Or do you want to just give me a gun? comes I'll kill them all the man the myth the legend John Wick you're not very good at retiring 
I'm working on it. All right, Andy, Letterboxd, what are you going to do? This is so exciting. I'm going to say three and a half and a heart. No, I actually enjoy this. I gave it four stars when I first watched it, and I'll stick with four stars and a heart. It's, yeah, it's just one of those that I, I do enjoy a bit, but you know, I think four stars is as high as I would go. <laughs> I <do> enjoy a bit. <laughs> uh, this is a five-star movie for me. This, is, uh, uh, this, this movie kind of fits that same vibe for me as Ronan. Like, and you know, you know, my feelings about Ronan. And so, like, I, I really enjoy um, my experience in this universe. uh, And uh, I'll, I'll come back to it often. Oh, okay. So how many times would you say you've seen this then? 15. Wow. Okay. I mean, you know, I'm not always paying attention. Yeah. At 15. Like, I, I just put it on. It's just running. But that's more than once a year. Okay, so but you're not always watching it. No, not always watching it. But it's 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 just sort of there. I like I like being able to turn my head to it while I'm doing something else and think, oh, I remember this part. There are very few movies I do that with. Can you name any right now? Die Hard. Okay. Um, Raiders. And I I think it's because they're films that I've seen so many times. I think it's one of those things where I'm fine putting it on just to have in the background. I just I just don't do that often with movies. Generally, if I'm putting on a movie, it's because I'm going to sit down and watch it. I just I rarely put them on as just background. You have you have business to do. You have letterbox reviews to write, lists to check off. I do. That's true. Yeah. A lot of lists. A lot, a of, lot lists. of so many lists. Yeah. Well, again, don't forget to visit thenextreel.com slash letterbox to get your patron or pro membership. It works for renewals as well. And we also have our own membership. You can learn about it at thenextreel.com slash membership. You can get early access to shows. You can get member bonus episodes. We release uh, you know, at least one a month. We have got uh, sometimes conversations happening before and or after each of our episodes. All sorts of great stuff. And again, you can learn more about that at thenextreel.com slash membership. You know what? I screwed up, Andy. I screwed up. I forgot to do my whole letterbox bit at the beginning. So just before you forget, use the code NEXTREEL at checkout at Letterboxd. It gets you 20% off. That's what we meant to say. Okay. Well, what did you think about John Wick? We would love to hear your thoughts. Hop into the Show Talk channel in our Discord community where we will be talking about it this week. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Letterboxd giveth, Andrew. As Letterboxd always doeth. Wait, did you go high or low, or middle, or friends? I went three and a half. Three and a half, right in the middle. Okay. What do you got? Uh, this is by Jay, who just had this to say, Willem Dafoe. You know, I'm something of an assassin myself. <laughs> <laughs> that's actually, that's one of those blooming onions, layers of that joke. That's yep, good. Yep. Love it. Uh, I went down to the very bottom of the barrel and I have, I just, just a, 
<laughs> just a couple. Uh, Anna Furlong gives it a half star, says, okay, yeah, the dog murder was effed up. And all right, he's this big guy that kills and will F you up. But that's it? Where's the context? Who is this guy? Why is everyone so afraid with him? What else is this about? Dumbass movie. <laughs> Poing gives it a half star and says, I can see the screenwriting writing workshop. <laughs> <laughs> I love, but the 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 cherry on top is Death Noodles. Half Star Review says, pretty wild watch with a church youth group. <laughs> oh, <laughs> wow. That's pretty funny. Outstanding. Pretty funny, pretty funny. Oh, thanks, Letterboxd. You're the best. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I have tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM, and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.